Let's pray. Our Father, we are, uh, we are grateful, Father, we can worship You in spirit and in truth, that we can come into Your presence and acknowledge um, that, Father, apart from You, we can do nothing. We have nothing to offer You other than what You have accomplished in our life as um, acceptable sacrifices made so by um, the work of Jesus on the cross. And even, even Father, now as we open Your Word, we sense a, a, a certain neediness, a, a level of of uh, a, a cry within us to say, speak to us, Lord, teach us, communicate your heart to us. And um, so we want to receive from you, Father, as we also give to you uh, of, our, of our minds, of our inner being. We, we, um, uh, we enter into this time of worship that we've had, and now we, as we continue in Your Word, as, um, as, as uh, needy people, Father, thank You for what You'll accomplish, and we just expectantly look for um, Your Word to us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. The drama that unfolded this week in Washington, D.C., over President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court should cause us all to pause and, um, and consider. And whether Judge Brett Kavanaugh is innocent or guilty of the things he is being accused of as a 17-year-old is, um, is not my point in bringing this up. But I do want us to consider this. If your life was being scrutinized, if your past actions were being exposed, um, what, would, what would we do? How frightening would that be? Especially if, if it was your enemies, your political enemies that were digging things up. How frightening would it be for you to have all your past exposed. Well, what if it was God doing the scrutinizing? What if it was God who was delving into your past, knowing you intimately, and not just your past or present sins, but your past and even present thoughts the intentions of your heart, the mere attitudes that you once held on to, what if that would all be exposed before a holy and righteous God? What then? Frightening to consider. Now, we're studying the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet of God that was commissioned by God in Isaiah chapter 6, as we saw last week, 
commissioned by God to proclaim judgment against God's people, to proclaim having exposed the sinfulness of people, God's displeasure, His wrath against what was being exposed in the sinful hearts of the people. He had commissioned Isaiah to be his mouthpiece, to be his spokesperson, to pronounce God's righteous judgment on a sinful people. We see that in the opening verses. Again, chapter 1, just to turn there real quickly, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And then in verse 2 begins this formal, as it were, in a court of law. It's a formal pronouncement of uh, an indictment of charges that are being brought. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. And the witnesses are being called to gather in the court of law. O heavens and O earth, listen. The Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows his owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they've turned away from Him. This is the beginning of, of, a, of, a, of a court scene where the covenant-making God is handing out indictments against the covenant-breaking people that He had entered into covenant with. They have abandoned me, they are evil, they are, have despised the Holy One of Israel, they've turned away from God. Now, we've studied up through chapter 28 of Isaiah, and all through these opening chapters, the key theme that seems to dominate is this theme of judgment. It's these formal charges that are being unpacked in these chapters of Isaiah. And in chapters 28 to 33, it's a section I want us to focus on uh, this morning, uh, there are that, that word woe is used six times. There are more judgments that are being pronounced against God's people and against the enemies of God's people. No one is spared from God's wrath. So I want to go through these chapters and summarize six types of sinners that God is judging. First of all, God judges the proud scoffers. In chapter 28, verse 1, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Verse 14, therefore hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. The proud scoffers. Now, I think of a scoffer, I think of someone who just is defiant against God, laughs at the face of God, and that would be a scoffer. Somebody who might not even believe that Jesus Christ even existed. But what about the the people of God who ignore God's truth, who order our lives based on our own thinking, based on our, our own way of looking at things, and depart from God and His Word to solve our own problems. Focus on our own wisdom, our own perspectives, 
to get out of the mess we've created. Is that, in, in essence, is that not a practical scoffer? A proud scoffer when we consider our own will above God's? When we make decisions in life, are we not basically scoffing at God and His Word? Woe, O proud scoffer. Second of all, God judges the vain worshipers. In chapter 29, verse 13 and 14, Then the Lord said, Because His people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions that are learned by rote. We looked at this last week. Vain worshipers. And is it not true that any time we merely go through the motions of worship, Anytime we just come and, and sit and don't engage our heart, our mind with our great God, is that not just empty worship? When we gather corporately and forget that we're coming to offer Him something and not just receive something, is that not vain worship? You see, God cares that we humbly submit to Him and not become proud scoffers. God also cares that we worship Him rightly. Thirdly, God judges deceptive schemers. God judges deceptive schemers. In chapter 29, verse 15 and 16, woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he didn't make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. God judges the deceptive schemers. Because you see, God cares what we do in secret. David wrote right in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I, where can I go? Wherever I go, you're there. You know me. I've sung this song many times, I think, over the years to you, the little Sunday school song that I learned when I was a little kid that maybe many of you did. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, little ears, little mouth, what you say, little hands, what you do, feet, where you go. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. So be careful. That web page we visited, that flirtatious encounter with a coworker, that improper thought we silently harbor, and as we do, we forget God is the potter, we're the clay, and we don't pull anything over Him. God cares what we do in secret. Fourthly, God judges the rebellious disobedient. In chapter 30, verse 1, Isaiah wrote, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but it's not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. In verse 9, he says, For this is a rebellious people. They're false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. You ever remember a time where you pulled a fast one on your parents? 
I mean, where you did things that totally against what your parents told you to do. Now, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I wanted to be a pastor since I was five years old, and I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes. I was a really pretty good kid. I, I really was. Um, I, I maybe pestered my sister a little too much that my folks told me not to do, but I, I think that's perfectly justified. <laughs> I was a pretty good kid. Um, last Christmas, though, I had four children, and uh, we were all gathered together, two boys, two girls, all in their 30s. And those kids began to talk about things that they did that Lisa and I had had no awareness of. <laughs> they thought they were safe 20-some years later. And we're saying, you did what? And right then and there, all kids in their 30s, I put them all in timeout right there. <laughs> the children of Israel were rebellious. He says in verse 10 and 11, they say to the seers, you must not see visions. And they say to the prophets, you must not prophesy what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions, like get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. La, 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 we don't want to hear this anymore. Be quiet. We will do our own thing. Rebellion, disobedient. God cares that we obey Him completely. God judges, fifthly, the self-reliant. Chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But they don't look to the Holy One of Israel, nor do they seek the Lord. See, God cares that we trust Him implicitly. As we saw last week, this was the problem that was going on in the 8th century B.C. As the Assyrians were coming, Judah and the people in Jerusalem were trying to figure out how are we going to solve this dilemma, and they looked to the Egyptians. We'll figure this out. We'll, we'll, we'll make an alliance with the armies to the south, and then we'll, we'll form this alliance, and we'll fight together the Assyrians. Woe, says God, to those who make their own plans. God cares that we trust Him implicitly. God judges the spiritually complacent in chapter 32. Verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. For within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters. For the vintage is ended, the fruit gathering will not come. Um, in a previous passage in Isaiah, Isaiah specifically calls out the, the women of Jerusalem, the, the high society women of Jerusalem. Here again, he calls out these people who are living complacently. You see, God cares about people who are spiritually lazy. 
finally, there's a statement in the whole chapter, chapter 34, that God judges actually all the nations. And He says in verse 1 and 2, draw near, O nations, to hear. Listen, O peoples, let the earth and all it contains hear, the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and His wrath against all their armies, and He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. We're going to unpack that more next week. The God that Isaiah saw in the vision recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted the the train of his robe was filling the temple, smoke, the whole foundations of the threshold were shaking as the seraphim cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That God cares how his people live their life. He's the thrice holy God and his holiness requires, his righteous holiness requires Judgment for sin, which raises a very serious question. It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 33. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire, they say? Who among us can live with continual burning? What a great question. Holy, holy, holy is God. He doesn't grade on the curve. He's not the old grandfatherly type person who kind of looks away and chuckles, well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. He's the thrice holy God, and He must, to be in keeping with His character, judge sinners. And so it's entirely appropriate to ask, who among us can live with such a consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote. In Romans chapter 117, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and sinfulness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All the unrighteousness, the ungodliness, the sinfulness of men. All. Proud scoffers? Check. Have I worshipped in vain? Check. Have I ever deceitfully schemed? Check. Have I ever been disobedient? Not to my parents, maybe, but to God. <laughs> Check. Have I ever acted in a self-reliant way? Check. Have I ever been spiritually complacent? Check. 
the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. That's what God said. Who among us can live with a consuming fire? Who among us can survive the continual burning? However, that's only half the story. That's only half the story. While God's judgment against sin is really a central theme in these first 35 chapters of Isaiah, there is another key theme that parallels, that runs all throughout these chapters. Another key theme of hope, of future glory, of future salvation, of future redemption. And the amazing thing is, as Isaiah wrote this, as he wrote a, a section on judgment, he, he juxtaposed this section of, of hope. He would write a section of judgment. Then he would slip in a section of hope. It looks something like this in the first five chapters in the preface of Isaiah. You've got 1 through 17, judgment. And then all of a sudden, there's a few verses, 18 to 20, hope. And then it gets back to judgment, 21 through 25, and then a couple of verses, hope. And then chapter 2 begins with hope, and then he slips back into judgment. And if we go to the section of chapter 28 through 33, 35, you see the very same thing unfolding. In fact, it's almost identical. You almost have equal passages of judgment with equal passages of hope, of blessing. And it's all mixed in there. If we were to take time and just read through all of the first 35 chapters now of Isaiah, you would see this take place. Judgment, hope. Judgment, hope. Judgment, hope. What's God wanting to communicate here? What's He trying to, to say to us? What do we learn in these sections on hope and coming glory that are juxtaposed with, with these, these powerful and damning passages of judgment? What are we to walk away with? This prophetic voice of hope. There are six truths that I want to quickly share with you about this coming hope. Now, for Isaiah in his time, these passages were interpreted, I think, relating to the salvation that was going to come, and we'll read about that in chapters 36 through 39 of Isaiah in a couple of weeks. And so in Isaiah's time, there was a sense of hope, but what Isaiah wrote was only partially fulfilled in his day. There's the hope of a king. Now turn with me to chapter 28. Let's just walk through a few of these passages. There's the hope of a coming king. Chapter 28, verse 5 and 6. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem and the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. Chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign righteously, 
and princesses will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. And then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And the mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak clearly. Or chapter 33, verse 17. After statements of judgment come these words of hope. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech which no one comprehends or a stammering tongue which no one understands. Look upon Zion, the city of your appointed feast. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which shall not be folded. Its stakes shall never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there, the majestic one, the Lord, Jehovah, shall be for us a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat or oar shall go and on which no mighty ship shall pass. For Verse 22, the Lord Jehovah is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He shall save. Hope. Hope of a king. Second of all, hope of a future victory. Back to chapter 29, verse 5. Chapter 29, verse 5. But the multitude of your enemies shall become like fine dust. And the multitudes of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away. And it shall happen instantly and suddenly for the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, or from the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise. There will be victory. If you go to chapter 31, verse 4, 31, verse 4, for thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. And like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. Look at this next phrase. He will pass over and rescue it. Guess where that word was used previously? Exodus, the Passover. God is going to bring victory, ultimate victory. There's the hope of restoration. Back to 29, verse 17. Complete restoration. Is it not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest? And on that day the deaf shall hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see and the afflicted also shall increase their gladness in the Lord and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Restoration is coming. The hope of of future grace. Chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. 
And some of our translations will say wait. And I'm going to come back to that verse in a moment. Verse 19, O people in Zion, inhabited in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your, great, of your cry, and when he hears it, he will answer you. And although the Lord has given you bread of privation and, and the water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher, and your ears will hear a word behind you, this is the way, walk in it. And whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver, your molten images plated with gold, you'll scatter them as an impure thing, and you're going to say to them, be gone. And then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous. And on that day, your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture, and the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with a shovel and the fork. And on every lofty mountain, on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. And on the day that Jehovah the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Oh, behold, verse 27, behold the name of Jehovah. He comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense in his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation. His tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put in the, in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. But you will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Jehovah Lord, to the rock of Israel, Verse 30, and the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm to be seen in the fierce anger and in the flame of the consuming fire in cloudbursts, downpour and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with a rod. And every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be of the music of tambourines and lyres and in battles brandishing weapons, he will fight them. For Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. We're talking about coming future grace in power and majesty. And along with it, the hope of peace. Chapter 32, verse 15 Judgment will fall, but verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field are considered as a forest, and then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, and confidence forever. And then my people will live in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. The hope of peace and the hope of eternal joy. Chapter 35, the entire chapter. 
The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and the shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage. Fear not. Look, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, and the waters will break forth in the wilderness, and the streams and the Arabah, the scorched land, verse 7, will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called Highway of Holiness. The unclean will not travel on it but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. And no lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. Verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The hope of eternal joy. Isaiah's prophetic word of hope was for this Jewish people. Yes, fulfilled in part when God does something miraculous that we're going to study in chapters 36 to 39, but only fulfilled in part because what Isaiah wrote here is also relevant for us. There's hope. There's future glory. There's eternal joy coming. Eternal peace. The justice, the righteousness, the mercy, the grace, the truth of God is going to prevail. Because after judgment comes hope. And Isaiah, or God, through the prophet Isaiah, did not want us to forget that. Judgment, hope. Judgment, hope. Judgment, peace and joy. Restoration and victory and a king. How do we get from judgment to hope? The hope of this king, the hope of victory over sin and death, the hope of restoration of eternal peace, of everlasting joy. How do we get from judgment to hope? Let me share with you just three more verses. Back to chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs. Now, if you have a King James, a New King James Version, the word is translated, He waits. And I think that's the proper translation. The Lord, and obviously he longs for it, but the word literally is he waits. He waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he, he waits on high, or again, literally, and the King James has that, he rises to have compassion on you. There's this sense of anticipation. There's this sense, I think, of almost a a sovereign 
calmness because God has a plan. He waits to be gracious, but he, He's rising to express His compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, which means God makes exactly the right decisions at exactly the right time in exactly the right way. That's His he, he is right in all that He does. The Lord, God of rightness. And so how blessed are all those who long, or there's that word again, who wait for Him. Isaiah is saying, not yet, but soon. For God rises to express His compassion. Look, He's rising as He has waited to be gracious to you. Wait, Isaiah tells the people. You see, hope is found in a God of grace and compassion and mercy who always does the right thing at the right time in the right way. Hope is in that kind of God. Here's the second verse. Clear back in chapter 1, in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. For though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. For hope is found in a God who has a plan to remove our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, our failures, our proud scoffing, our ridiculous disobedience, our deceitful scheming, our vain worship. God has a plan to wipe it clean. Hope is found in a God who will bring about spiritual cleansing. But how? When? Here's the third verse. Do you remember it? Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah is saying, hope is found in a coming child who's going to be given to us. Hope is found in a child who will be born. But what will this child do? And what will he give us? What will this son of David provide that will bring about this victory, that will bring about this eternal joy and everlasting peace? Well, Isaiah will devote time to that as we get later in Isaiah, specifically chapter 53, where he tells this incredible story this truth that that vision he saw in Isaiah 6, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and exalted. The threshold shook, the train of his robe filled the temple, the seraphim and Tiffany were singing, separate, distinct, 
Totally other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The very one who steps from that throne of glory and comes down as a servant who suffers and dies on a cross. Hope is found, Isaiah will say ultimately, in a Savior who died on a cross. Who will spare us from the perpetual burning? Who will save us from the consuming fire? A child was born and a son was given. The mighty exalted Lord went to a cross. And the waiting of chapter 30, verse 18, came to an end 2,000 years ago. Jesus came and died, satisfied God's righteous wrath, His righteous judgment against sin. He took it upon Himself. He died in our place as our substitute to offer us eternal joy, eternal peace, to be our King, our Savior. Do you have any questions as to whether or not God desires to be gracious to you or compassionate to you today? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Though our sins were as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Because God truly is holy, holy, holy. He's in a class all his own. There is no one like him who can maintain the balance between holy judgment and holy grace. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him as your Savior? For you see, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And one day ultimate and complete judgment will be meted out against all whose sins have not been taken care of. Do you know Him as a Savior today? Have you come to that point where you have put your faith and trust in Him and Him alone? Have you transferred your hope off of yourself and onto Christ who died and rose again? I invite you to do that right now. To take what you've just heard. Do you believe it? For God so loved you, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Who will save me from my sin. Jesus did. Has he you? At the cross, he did it all. Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? And so, Father, drive this truth home to us. As you wrote it to the prophet Isaiah centuries ago, it's truth that changes lives today. 
Father, in your grace, in your kindness, would you open a heart right now to respond to this good news? For salvation is of the Lord, and you offer it as a free gift to all who will believe. Thank you for the work that you did for us, Lord Jesus, on the cross. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.